Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And what is the Kingdom of God? The Kingdom of God is the government of God. It is how men were to govern themselves under the authority of God, instead of the gods of the world. And who are the gods of the world? Well, there are other men who get the power that every individual is endowed with by the Creator. Now, my father was endowed with certain rights, and his father was endowed with certain rights, and my father and grandfather uh, waived certain of those rights at different times in their life, and then I was born. <laughs> so, now, did since rights are inherited, how many of those endowed inalienable rights did I inherit? that my fathers and grandfathers had not already waived. Well, actually, I have a unique history. <laughs> so the rights that my grandfather and father have waived may not be the same as the rights that your father and grandfather have, have waived. Except for the fact that they are inalienable rights, unalienable rights. They are rights, supposedly, that were endowed by God, And they could be still intact, but chances are they are not intact because you can waive rights, and you can waive rights by accepting debt, uh, accepting benefits that are provided by debt. Then you may be required to pay that back. That was one of the things in the one-child contract in China. You could get uh, a right to... Benefits, if you signed up for the one-child contract. If you signed up for that one-child contract, you could get, you know, free education. You could get extra clothing allowance, extra food allowances, special privileges. Except, if your wife got pregnant again, you were expected to abort the child. Because you had a contract with the government that you would only have one child. And now you are about to have two children. And so you could still have those two children, but you would have to pay back all those benefits that you had already received, which you may have already consumed and you may have nothing to pay it back with. So you literally were indenturing yourself as you accepted those benefits. From the government of China. Now, they've removed their one-child policy and they've actually encouraged people to have children now because of the fact that they're facing population collapse. And so they, they wanted to turn around that process. And of course, in the West, which is, you know, United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, which aren't always, always in the West, but they're categorized as part of the West, they are facing population collapse as well. 
And they're facing it for a lot of different reasons. The birth rate has been dropping. Fertility rate has been dropping. And I'm not even talking about data that's been collected over the last two years, where a lot of things have happened that may affect the birth rate. But in many countries, the birth rate is so low, they are facing population collapse. And it only takes like a generation for this to take place. Education-wise, an awful lot of children are being graduated from high schools and colleges who really do not know very much. Now, there are a lot of competent people out there, but there is a percentage of people that are competent in every society, and there are a percentage of people that are less competent in every society. We've actually found, and I've talked about it, certain social groups, because of culture of intermarrying, in order to keep the wealth in the family, they have actually lowered their IQ. This is well documented. The cultures have lowered their IQ in those Groups of people, I don't want to say which ones they are, because everybody, you know, then I'd be a racist suddenly. But uh, they have lowered their IQ across the board, way lower than what it should normally be, because, and this is what the studies show, because of inbreeding. Because they have been marrying cousins too close to home for too long a period of time. Now, many times this happens uh, over the centuries, but... If you start doing it time and time again, there can a, a problem can develop. You need that diversity of genetics. And there are other reasons that we found that in the South, because of the presence of a certain parasite that everybody seemed to be susceptible to at one time because of certain cultural and social practices, that it was lowering the IQ of people in the South. And once they found out what the source of that lowering of the IQ was, it had to do with causing anemia, and they began to remedy the the infestation of these parasites through a number of social practices, hygiene practices, and uh, it's actually parasites that can be treated to some degree. But if you're reinfesting yourself, you'd have to continuously be treating yourself for those parasites. But the reality is, is they discovered this back in the 20s and 30s, and they did something about it, and now it's not a problem anymore. But there are other problems that we're finding that is affecting IQ. I mean, just the shutdown for two years has supposedly lowered IQ points across the board, generally speaking, because of the fact that kids went home and were not doing studies. They were not socially interacting like they did with other kids. Now, my kids were home-taught. Now, fortunately, when we were home-taught, there were other families around, uh, some related cousins, some not related, that uh, were also home-taught. So they had a certain amount of interaction, plus the fact that they that they had interaction with the local communities at at different levels and different times. So we came from a rather small community. My sister went to uh, high school in Los Angeles and had the largest graduating class in history when she graduated from high school. 
And the reality is, is even though she had this huge, giant uh, class that almost had to have an aerial photo to get everybody in, she really didn't know all those people. She still dealt with a microcosm of people in that whole class. She didn't know hundreds and hundreds of people. Because you, you really can only know, you know, like 10, 15 friends closely and everybody else is just kind of acquaintances. And then often one of the important things is that you have like two or three close friends. One of the things with the one-room schoolhouse is that you, one of the things you had to learn was how to get along with everybody else. Well, now, we've been looking at Exodus, and we're up to, we did Exodus 23 this morning, I believe it was. <laughs> You're losing track of the numbers, they're all blending together. Uh, but now we're in Exodus 24, and what Moses is doing, he has, you have thousands and thousands of people. Nobody has uh, either, you know, iPhones or, or, or uh, Galaxy phones or any of these phones that you can have. Uh, they don't have Google. They don't have the Internet. They only know the people that are immediately around them. Even though they may be traveling with tens of thousands of people, they really can only maybe know a hundred or so at, with any kind of distinctively knowing. But they're blending in. And, of course, they're not all marching in a single line all the time, and they're not all marching in a massive group of thousands of people. They have livestock, so that livestock has to spread out. They're creating a network. They have these horns so that if, if they're attacked, or you know, even attacked by just a handful of thugs that come into their camp in the middle of the night to steal stuff, steal the sheep, whatever, that they can blow these horns and... Israelites will come from all over the place and come to their aid. They're learning how to come to each other's aid. Now, there are no grocery stores around. There are no uh, supermarkets around. There's no 7-Elevens around. There's no bomb pod grocery. Everything has to be created amongst themselves. They will eventually start trading with other inhabitants, but basically they're becoming a self-sustaining unit. And this is much... Uh, a part of the fact that they are carrying with them large numbers of animals, cattle and sheep, and probably goats, and maybe a few others. So, you know, in the movie Moses, I think they had ducks going along with them. And of course, Moses makes it so you can't have any ducks <laughs> because you can't eat ducks because unless you're going to get down off the duck, <laughs> they. You're not supposed to eat those web creatures, uh, you know, web-footed uh, waterfowl. And there's actually a health reason why this was the case at that time. And uh, there may be some symbolic reasons when we get into the food laws. We'll explore some of that. We've already started exploring some of that. They've added the idea of milk and meat can't be mixed. Uh, according to relatively modern Jewish folklore, that wasn't a thing before Jesus Christ, according to most scholars, but it developed around the time of Herod, along with a lot of other ideas. Uh, the fact that you had to get all the leaven out of your house for, you know, and you could only eat unleavened bread. That's lost on most people what that's really all about. 
because they still have the leavening that Moses was talking about in their house after they take all the yeast out. Go look at our article on leaven if you want to find out what I'm talking about. But we're going to be talking about Exodus 24, and so we might as well just get into it. I I will be here for at least an hour doing this probably. And at the end of the first hour, we will take questions if you want to call in and ask a question. We've laid a lot of groundwork in, in the original parts of this. I'm also going to try to put together a video series that relates back to this as I get through the rest of Jordan Peterson's videos on Exodus and uh, hopefully we'll bring a lot of light to where there has been darkness. And uh, maybe even get connected to Jordan Peterson enough and some of those people or some of the people following Jordan Peterson to find out what they're missing. Because they admit in the course of their conversations there's some things they just don't, do not get. And uh, And I see them skirting around or missing certain very essential elements and because they miss that there is a whole series of things they cannot put into mosaic perspective if I can use that word mosaic perspective (laughs) the perspective of Moses which is a bit of a mosaic it's all a puzzle and so if you got one piece out of place or you have one piece missing, you can't finish the puzzle and you may not figure out exactly what Moses was doing. And of course, it is my contention that Moses was teaching identically to what Jesus said. Now, many Christians will immediately turn me off because they say, oh, well, that's not the case because that's not what I learned. That's not what I know. That Jesus changed everything. Jesus didn't change everything. Jesus was a reformer to what Moses was trying to teach the people. But most people don't know what Moses was trying to teach because there has been, from the beginning, people trying to steer them away. And we'll touch on some more of that as we go through Exodus 24. So, Exodus 24 starts out basically with the covenant confirmed. This idea of the covenant confirmed in Exodus 24. And he says, verse 1, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, Yahweh, thou and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. So all these people are coming up and some of them are going to worship afar off, whatever that means. But uh, And and sometimes I will explain some of these things and show you the actual Hebrew there. Sometimes I I will not. I'll just leave it. But I'm going to try to give you some major pieces of the puzzle as we go through 24. And we're going to go through a little quicker than we have with some of the other. We did two hours on 23 this morning. But we're going to go through this a little faster. Not that it isn't rich with information, but we're going to try to keep focused so that we can bring this into a perspective. We're not going to look at the minutia so much, although we might look at the micro. You're going to hear me say that over and over again, the micro and the macro. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh. Neither shall the people 
go up with him. So there's a select group that is going to come a little closer, and but only Moses is going to come all the way up. And the people are way back. So anyway, in verse 3 we say, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice, and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. So they gave this response that they would. Again, that word judgments is there. I should probably put a link in so that you can see what word that is. This is what a lot of people think are laws or statutes. And I see them struggling with that in the Jordan Peterson group, thinking in the terms that these laws that they're reading are actual laws when they're actually judgments. And it changes your perspective. It's like you're looking at it from a different angle because you're thinking these are laws and you're trying to apply them like laws. This is a 59 mile an hour speed zone and you were going 60. You broke the law. You know, you turned right and you should have turned your signal on 50 yards before you got to the corner or 50 feet before you got to the corner. You turned on your signal after you got there. You entered into the crosswalk when that little old lady had not stepped up on the curb at the far end of the crosswalk, way away from you. You worked to enter the crosswalk until she was out of the crosswalk. So I'm going to give you a $150 fine. It's not that kind of statute. As a matter of fact, your statute should not be that kind of statutes. And in fact, many of your statutes would not be that kind of statutes if you were accepting the responsibility that Christ condemn the Pharisees for not accepting, which was to tend to the weightier matters, which we will talk more about in another place and have already. Verse 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. So it's oxen. There's a bunch of oxen that young men are going to go. They're going to they're round up these oxen, which are... An ox, generally speaking, and, and if you look at the Hebrew word, it doesn't have to be an ox. It could be a bull. But the reality is they castrated those bulls they did not want to use for breeding. They had an extensive breeding program. They were very knowledgeable in breeding both oxen and sheep and, and goats. This is This is very important to understand how that worked. And some ox, you say, well, I don't want any calves out of that little bull calf. So we're going to butcher him, not butcher him, we're going to castrate him early on. Now, if you really want an ox for pulling, most people don't know this. I am actually a shepherd and a herdsman, so I know a lot of these things. If if you want to use an ox for pulling, pulling those wagons of bricks and straw back in Egypt, 
pulling all those things that they need to take with them. You know, they're taking a lot of gold and silver with them and and other items with them. And so they're moving all this stuff. And they may have oxen for pulling. There's actually going to be rules about hooking up an oxen with a mule or with a, you know, some sort of, like a donkey. Uh, they may not have mules at that time, but they, they may have had donkeys that would pull burdens. You wouldn't hook the oxen up with them because they would be unequally yoked. Now, obviously, that's a common sense thing not to hook up an oxen with a donkey to pull the same cart. It would look ridiculous. It would be absurd. If you even did it, it would be like a comedy routine to people who actually dealt with that on a regular basis. So when Moses makes a rule up about that, he's not making a rule up about that. He's using something that people already understand to make a metaphor to draw a picture with an allegorical story of somebody who hooked up an oxen and a donkey so that people would understand how important it is not to become unequally yoked with things that are not the same because it's not going to work out. They know it's not going to work out when it comes to an ox, ox and a donkey, but they don't always know when it comes out to, say, getting married <laughs> or becoming a partner. Uh, if we have time later, I'll tell you a story about partners <laughs> and how it can lead to disaster. But in these verses, we see them talking about 12 pillars. Now, if you go look up online some of the videos that I've talked about before, and they talk about the location at the end of the wadi where they crossed the Red Sea, which is actually the Gulf of Aqaba, which is a part of the Red Sea, and, of course, the Red Sea included all the way out to the Indian Ocean as a matter of vocabulary at that time. And uh, But they crossed at a particular place. And if you go there to that place, you'll find pillars, including, uh, well, to some of those places, uh, because they're already across now. But if you follow those videos that show those places, you'll get to a place where they come to a place where they find these Parts of pillars, stones cut out of unique stones, cut round, still laying there. Now, were they cut thousands of years later by somebody who wanted the petroglyphs that you find on the stones where they believed that this was all taking place? Did somebody, did somebody carve those at the time of Solomon in order to cooperate the story? I mean, some people will tell you Moses didn't even write the Torah that was written at a much different time. Now, I'm not going to say that doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter what you think about when it was written if you don't understand the message. If you miss the message, you can be absolutely right about who wrote it, but it doesn't do you any good because you missed the message. So when he's talking about, in verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill... And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, over in the right-hand column, I have links to articles already written by us about burnt offerings. 
and about peace offerings and even sacrifices and what they were all about. We also have articles on what an altar is. And you can click on them and go read those articles. Many of you who are listening, I know, already are familiar with these things. But if anybody hears this, because eventually this will go out on the podcast and they hear this, we have an abundance of information to try to put all... If you don't have all these pieces, you're not going to have a good perspective of what Moses is actually doing in this basin, in this valley, under the hill. And so, anyway, as uh, so they, they butchered these oxen. And, of course, in order to do that, you, you know, how do you butcher an oxen? Uh, you've got a 1,200-pound, 1,500, I, I didn't finish about why you castrate them and when you castrate them. If you're not going to use them for breeding, you're going to castrate them. If you want to use them as an ox, you don't castrate them early. You castrate them later, after they've grown a little while. And that will also tell you whether or not you want to keep them for breeding purposes. And when you castrate them, they will have already begun to develop the shoulders they'll need for pulling. And and the, the chest muscles that they need for pulling because they know that the male is going to do this. It's going to develop these strong forward muscles so it will be able to pull. And so you castrate it later. If you're just going to use it for meat, you might castrate it earlier. But you don't need one bull for every cow. You need one bull for every 25 cows. Maybe even 30 or 40 cows. And that's all you need for breeding purposes. And if you have too many bulls, the bulls will fight amongst each other and actually kill each other, cripple each other. And so you're actually doing a humanitarian thing by selectively removing those that are not going to be used for breeding purposes. That's management. And so, now you have these oxen, though, and you want to butcher them. you got a 1,200-pound, I don't know how big they were then, but easy. You could get an oxen or a bull that weighs anywhere between 1,200 and 2,000 pounds. And you got to go up and kill it. Now, if we're going to do that, we generally do it by shooting them first and then going up. And the shot... It's only knocking them out. It doesn't kill them. And then you go up and you slit the throat and they die by bleeding. Because as soon as the blood is not going to the brain, the animal will die rather quickly, very humanely, won't struggle a lot. Uh, it won't get back up again, generally speaking. And uh, it, it will die by the letting of blood. And that becomes a tradition with them. But then you can butcher it. They can't shoot it in the head <laughs> and knock it out. So they have to wait, have a way of going up to a bull and slitting his throat. And it's 12, 1,500 pounds, 2,000 pounds. How do they do this? Well, they'll actually make a chute, a corral that they can walk in. And I've seen, seen these corrals. They make them out of stone. And it has to hold a bull in there. It has to be straight stone. And straight corral, straight alleyway. They come down that alleyway and then 
with a sharp knife, you can reach in very quickly uh, and slit the throat. You're, you're slitting the jugular vein. You're not slitting the the airway or the throat that swallows. You're slitting only the 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 vein of the neck. Now some. Tribes have a knife that is specially designed to do that with a curved blade on the inside so you can reach around an animal and cut one side and then the other side almost in just a second. Uh, they also could be doing it with a guy on one side and a guy on another. And they slit the throat quickly. The animal goes down, just falls down directly and is unconscious and in a short period of time, they, they can collect the blood in a short period of time, which they do here in the text. Uh, the animal is dead and can be pulled away by a number of people or probably not with an ox unless you have a really good, well-disciplined ox. But you, you're going to pull that away and then you can start to cut it up so that you can prepare because they're going to eat these ox. This is a sacrifice. This is a feast. Everybody's going to partake of this meal. This culturally, whether you're talking about the Indians and the White Pine Treaty that we've talked about before, or you're talking about the Teutons, or you're talking about the Celts, or you're talking about the Romans, or you're talking about the Greeks in Athens, or the Greeks in Corinth, they all had these feasts. Everybody sat down to eat together. Passover was a feast. Everybody sat down to eat together in individual homes. But every home that was sitting and eating this feast had neighbors over at the same time. And they, unlike what the Koran allows you to do in some cases, they couldn't cut up the lamb. They had to cook the lamb whole, serve it whole, so you had to let other people into your house to eat that lamb and you had to finish it by that night. And like we talked this morning about you could not keep the fat till morning. That's really all about the fact you cannot promise to give to the needy. Promise to give to the feast. You have to actually give to the feast. And you have to bless them. So that's what's going on. The young men are preparing this. Moses is going up the mountain. Some men are going up with him part way. And everybody is pretty active. There's a few other things here that we're going to see as we go down to 6. And Moses took half the blood and put it in a basin. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So there's a lot of blood. If you're, if you're butchering oxen and there's a lot of people, if everybody's going to get a share, there's a lot of people that are going to eat of this. Now, they're going to be cooking it, so I don't know what they have for firewood, but they're going to have to get a lot of people out collecting it. They're going to prepare this meat, and it's it's a big deal. It's a big operation. Verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said, will we do and be obedient. So we've had that stated literally twice that they will be obedient. And they're saying it while they're preparing this meal of oxen. 
to verse 8. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. You're sharing a free meal. Moses is giving you a meal. Now we can ask the question, where did Moses get these oxen? He's not a keeper of flocks. Did he just go out and confiscate those from somebody? Where would he get all these oxen that he, you know, they're all uh, available to him? Is he just some dictator? Well, I'm going to take these oxen over here. We're going to feed it to all the people. Well, we already know. This is kind of filling in the gaps. We're going to color in the picture. We already know that the firstborn are given to the house of the Lord. Right away, the firstborn of any animal, you have a cow, her firstborn is going to go to the house of the Lord. The firstling. It's going to go to the house of the Lord. I just started a page. It's just about the firstborn firstling. It's going to go to the Lord. Well, God doesn't need to eat it. What's he going to do with it? Uh, oh, we just going to burn it up. That's a burnt offering, right? We just set them on fire and burn them up. They're going to eat this. They're going to cook it. It is a burnt offering, but you have to go read our article on burnt offering to understand what they're talking about when they say burnt offering. If you think God has just got you burning up sheep and burning up bulls and burning up oxen, nonsense. That's not what's going on here. This is a social structure designed to create social bonds that will be necessary to maintain a free society. This is, this is, at, this is the table of the Lord. That these people will be eating at. And they're going to eat these oxen. And they're going to eat them. At the time. Where they all agreed. To keep these commandments. If you don't agree to keep these commandments. Or I should say. To abide by these judgments. If you don't agree. You don't have a right to eat anything. It reminds me of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. Used to live down the road right here. Oh, not the Roman Marcus Aurelius. My next-door neighbor lived down on the old Pardon place. It was actually belonged to Marcus before it belonged to the Pardons. <laughs> and it belonged to Jess when I got here. <laughs> so, and Jess rode into this valley on horseback from the Oklahoma Territories. <laughs> but old Marcus Aurelius was Brandon one day and had neighbors from all over to help out with the branding. We all do that still here in this valley for many of the people who brand by rope and the calves. And the women were all preparing a big feed. They had boards out there on sawhorses and they were putting together, they were all cooking away, cooking outside, cooking in the kitchen. They were preparing all kinds of food. And the men were out there roping these calves and branding them. And when they were finally all done, it was time to go eat. Marcus said, everybody who's been helping, let's go over to the house and have a big feed. And everybody who's been just sitting on the fence, you just keep sitting on the fence. (laughs) And lo and behold, I asked the people who had been there, and they said that a lot of the guys who come there don't do any help. They never jump down the crowd. They never grab a calf and flip it up. They never... They never do anything. 
They just walked away. <laughs> but all those who had been working, they knew who they were. They all went over to have the feed. Well, that's a little bit what they're doing here. Everybody who is going to agree to these things that I'm going to read you that are from the Lord, and they've seen the Lord up there. They've seen the smoke all over the mountain and all this stuff. So they know there's somebody up there. They've been following this pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. They've seen what happened to the Egyptians. That wasn't that long ago. They've seen where food shows up for them. So, yeah, they know there's somebody, somebody doing stuff they don't know anything about. And now he says, we gotta do these things. Now, many of them understand why. I mean, the, those 70 have probably a really good idea why and how all this works. But not entirely, because they're all still learning a little bit. And so, they're going to have this meal. And Moses literally sprinkles blood on these people, and it's got to be a lot of blood. Half of it gets sprinkled on the people and they get a few drops on them. He's probably going around doing this. Maybe even takes the 70 and they're helping spread the blood around. So everybody gets a little drop of the blood on them. And it's just kind of a ritual and symbol. The blood isn't important. But the fact that you're going to sit and eat a free meal that that is the meat that belongs to God because it was given to the house of God if you eat that meal, you're making an agreement that you're going to abide by these judgments and all these other instructions that are come, which we talked about this morning. And so, if you're not, don't stick around. Slick, stick down and take off. And like I said this morning, this morning's program, many Israelites, probably many Egyptians, many of the other people that came along with them, May have started seeing, you know, they're very impressed. We got across the Red Sea. We know everybody didn't get across the Red Sea. We know that some went north and did not follow Moses. We don't know what happened to them. We just know they didn't go across the Red Sea with Moses. Uh, maybe there was a separate chariot group that went after them. Maybe Philistines got them. Maybe, maybe they survived somewhere. Who knows? But, those who went across, their numbers seem to be decreasing from what they started out with. I don't think they're all dying. I think they're leaving. It's too much. And they they don't want to go this way. They want to go somewhere else. And that's their choice. Because you don't start a free society by forcing everybody to do what you want. It just doesn't work that way. So anyway, the blood gets sprinkled around. This blood is the covenant. You're going to have this meal that expresses the fact that you agree to all this. So, And we've already agreed twice now with this second agreement. And then we get into verse 9. Then went up Moses. He's going to go up the mountain. Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel... Because it's kind of telling us this twice. Verse 10, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones, and as it were, the body 
of heaven in his clearness. Now we could go through each of the Hebrew words that are found in the text there. But I'm going to leave some of that to you. Verse 11. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Even the word nobles there can be misunderstood. Whoever these nobles are, we can look at the Hebrew for that. And uh, I might put it in so that it's easier for you to look up. Uh, but remember a lot of times these words, are there's extra letters added on. And there's a lot of words like that. You know, what do they mean? Paved work of a sapphire stone. What is, what is that? Uh, it were a body of heaven in his clearness. What What is that? Now, you can draw all kinds of pictures from that. I don't think it's as important as the fact that this is government by consent. And the consent becomes an obligation because you eat the free meal that is provided by God. And God provides it only with free will offerings that you choose to give it. I'm sure there were guys who said, I don't want to give my firstlings to these guys. Well, then you better go somewhere else. Because that's part of the deal. And so, I'm sure guys were leaving, left and right. And just like people left Jesus. They loved to see the shows that he would put on. But they didn't want to carry the burden. They didn't want to accept the responsibility. They didn't want to attend to the weightier matters. They didn't want to give up their position of power and prestige where they were looked up to because they had created a system that went up by steps. Go listen to our last broadcast if you want to know what that means. Or was it It was back in uh, when we did uh, Exodus 20. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. So that seems to be a section. It's just up to verse 11. Now we're starting verse 12. And the Lord, that tells us that we're starting something different, the way they start to word this. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and a law. And commandments, which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up, and his ministers, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. So he's leaving these guys, Aaron and Hur, in charge. Now we've already seen another situation up here where Aaron and Nabot and Ibihu were part of the 70 and something took place. What a number of Jewish scholars believe, 
and it's not important to me, but I it's important I mention it, is that what we read in 20 and 21 actually was moved to 20 and 21 and had been a part of this reading to the people. And then now another event is taking place where Aaron and Hur are left in charge and Joshua and Moses go up on the mountain. And he said to the elders, Terry, ye here. Where else in the Bible have we seen somebody important going up to a mountain related to communicating with God and making some sort of a sacrifice? And he had people coming with him and he told them to tarry, to, to wait back. Wasn't that in the story of Abraham? Everybody always wants me to interpret the story of Abraham. And there's a lot to interpret there. There's a lot that is about symbolism. And there's a lot about the personal discoveries of Abraham. Because Abraham is kind of looking at a lot of this stuff for the first time himself. He was taught a lot of things that had come down through the nine generations from Noah. And when he was in Ur, they were teaching him all kinds of stuff. And he was saying, hey, no, I, I, I can't go along with that. And there's all kinds of stories that are extra-biblical stories about Abraham, his birth, and everything in Ur. We know that Abraham probably came from Ur with Terah, started the city-state of Haran with Terah, and then decided to leave Haran. He actually left many times. It finally came out with many souls and started building altars. Now, he knew a lot more than we see written in the text. But there were still some things that he was kind of figuring out exactly how they worked. He wasn't doing everything perfect. Moses didn't do everything perfect either. But Abraham and Moses, well, Moses and Jesus were definitely in agreement. Abraham was certainly in agreement as a matter of faith. That's why he was building these altars why he wasn't becoming a member of a city-state like Gomorrah or Sodom, that he was actually doing something that made it so they didn't have to join the city-state. And when the city-state was defeated, his people that had built these altars were able to defeat that army in one night. So what were they doing? Was the bond simply that they were burning up sheep together? Those of you who are early to this, you know, first time to this, these broadcasts, you need to find out what they were doing. Because you're going to need to do that. Because you might be in one of these city-states that gets invaded. <laughs> so anyway, now these guys are tarrying. Aaron and Hur is in charge. And Moses is going up on the mountain. Joshua too, but Joshua doesn't go up as far. And then we're in verse 15. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord. Now we can look at the Hebrew word for glory. What does that mean? The glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. So something's going up on this Mount Sinai, going on there, that where we're talking about the Lord abiding on this mountain. And the cloud covered it six days And the seventh day, he called unto Moses 
out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So, from their perspective, looking up on this mountain, covered with a cloud, they saw like there was a devouring fire up there. Now, just to give you, this may have nothing to do with it, but I always remember the story of Tiberius in Rome. Looked up in the sky at night, and he saw glowing Sky. It was so bright at times when Tiberius looked to the north that he thought the entire north woods of Germany was on fire. The whole sky was just lit up with red colors and green colors and and bright lights everywhere. And you could actually read print on paper at night in the city of Rome. By this light that was in the sky. And he thought it was from a fire up there. And he actually mustered the army. He mustered soldiers. Whole legion of men. That that were sent north to find this fire. And to help put it out. He didn't know how close it was. But it had to be a big fire. Because the whole sky was glowing. And this is a matter of history. This is right about the time of Jesus Christ. Because it's Tiberius. Tiberius was emperor when Jesus Christ was crucified. So, what are they seeing? What was the aurora borealis? We had the aurora borealis here just the other night. You can see the red glow. It wasn't a huge amount of it, but it was substantial enough to see the red glow to the north. And they could see it in Michigan as well. They could see all these... I I would not want to try to march to the Red Cloud. <laughs> it would be a long walk. But that's that's what Tiberius... When these people, these children of Israel, are looking up on the mountain, they're seeing something that they're describing as a devouring fire. So like a bright fire on the top of the mountain. Is it really a fire? Is it something else? I don't know. But their description of it is a devouring fire. And in 18... And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got, got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. So now we're all of a sudden at the end of, uh, of the chapter. We could maybe go back and see what it said in chapter, uh, in verse 1. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nabod and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. So, there seems to be something out of place here. Like something happened. And all those things that we see in, like I say, verse in chapters 20 and chapters 21 were actually once in this place where Moses wrote all this down 
and told it to the people. This seems like a more practical place to put it. And some say it used to be here, but some moved it back. And then we see this separate event where Moses goes up with Joshua and Aaron stays back with Hur. So there's, this is where this kind of breaks up. So, anyway, we've almost filled the whole hour with this. If we go over to the side panel, I'll probably add more in there. Like I say, there, there's lots of oxen. They're being butchered. They're going to be eight. Uh, I don't think they drank the blood when they say they drank the offerings. You have to remember... They ate and drank the offerings. There were a lot of offerings besides ox. And so like if somebody had wine or somebody had something else, maybe the fruit, uh, you know, maybe they had some recipes or something. They had made something. You know, I remember that uh, uh, when I was studying in the seminary, guys in the seminary, kids, in the seminary. Most of them were older than me. I was 13 when I entered the seminary. Attending St. Joseph College. So, uh, almost all of them were bigger than me, except for Pribble. Uh, most of them were older than me. and But some of them were making wine secretly in a secret compartment in their lockers. <laughs> uh, they'd pull out the floor of their locker and they were fermenting wine down there. And some had made wine with raisins. Some had made them with grapes. And they were learning how to do this. Of course, many of the prisoners during the communist takeover of China from this, this was a religious order that was a missionary order. And so many of our uh, missionaries had been prisoners in China. We had a lot of missions in China. We also had them in Africa. We also had them in South America. But... When they were prisoners at times, I know this took place during World War II, they would make wine so that they could have the Eucharist and have some wine and some unleavened bread so that they could carry out this sacrament of the Eucharist. And so for us to learn how to do that, that was acceptable. But we couldn't tell the rector that we were doing it. If he found it, he would confiscate. <laughs> so it was a cat and mouse game. and But nobody ever got in trouble for doing it. Nobody ever got scolded for doing it. He would just confiscate it a lot of times before anybody could drink it. And he was he was one of the guys that had been tortured by the Chinese. So he was a pretty sharp guy. But this idea of having the knowledge to do this, and they had lots of knowledge. These people that were Israel, they were picking up knowledge they were inventing things. They were smart people. They had all kinds of skills that we'll see in subsequent chapters that they knew how to do. And Moses knew all the arts of the temple, the same as Aaron did. But he also knew all the sciences. He also knew all of the military tactics. He was trained in all the schools of Egypt. So he knew all these things. And... Many of the people that left with him, some of them were Egyptians, he probably had friends and allies that went with him. And they were in this entourage too and learning how to do all kinds of things. So anyway, that's giving you a little bit of the background and we got through, well, not still through the first hour, but building the altar. 
of uncut stone. And of course, everybody thinks uncut stone is very important. We can't put a chisel to it and all that stuff. And yes, but that's symbolic of a deeper meaning. And, and I'm just shocked that, I'm shocked but not shocked that Jordan Peterson's people are not getting it. That uncut stone means un, not molded by the hand of men. Not regulated by rules and laws. And even Moses' judgments are not laws. They're precedent to refer to when deciding the law. I did hear in episode 11 where Dennis Prager, who is a biblical scholar in the Hebrew ilk, and he's saying that the put to death, which I'm doing this article, put to death, that we read in the biblical text, doesn't mean really put to death. God, he says there is no historical evidence that anybody was ever put to death for striking or cursing their parents. He even interprets the, the word to honor or to curse your parents. That's our translation, honor and curse. You're supposed to honor your parents, not curse your parents. Honor, he says, means heavy. And curse means light. Take your parents lightly. He's almost right. He's on the right track. But honor also means, and this is the way it is with the Hebrew language, also means to fatten, to take care of, to provide for. If your parents are losing weight because they're not getting enough to eat and they're old and infirm, that's your fault. You must be slighting your parents. And that would be cursing your parents. That's the death penalty if we interpret the Hebrew words put to death as actually meaning you go and put somebody to death. And in my put to death article, which I am not finished with, i got lots more to do, but I added another section this afternoon. That's not what they're saying. And no way on earth that's what they're saying. You can believe it if you want, but there is no... What I did hear Dennis Prager make reference to is Genesis blood for blood. Genesis 9. Genesis 9 around 6. I think you can go back to 4 and 5 for the context. And it's all on the page already. I haven't even reread it, so there's maybe some typos in it. But he's saying that there is no allowance... For putting people to death, except in Genesis. And he said, when he said that, I thought like, where in Genesis is that? I mean, I've read Genesis. I don't remember any allowance that we can put people to death, given to us permission to put people to death, in capital punishment, in Genesis. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm against capital punishment. I'm just saying, what is what? I'm just telling what is the truth. You should know by the time you find out what the truth is, what God's stance is on you implementing capital punishment. I don't have to tell you. I'm just telling you the truth. You should be able to put that together on your own. But if you have a hard heart, you may think that you have the right to kill people that you think are guilty. Well, there's some warnings Back in Exodus 23, you got to be very careful. You start wielding that sword around, that stick around, that this person has to die. If you're wrong, guess what happens? 
<laughs> but the quotes that he's talking about has nothing, just real quickly, have nothing to do with giving man the right to kill other men as a punishment for crimes, even the crime of murder. And if you read the other sections I already have on that page, including the section Cain, not put to death by men, and some of the others surely die by what cause, you may start putting the pieces together. They're there. I may improve it, but you should be able to figure out that, no, God doesn't want you killing other people. Do I want to create a law that prohibits the death penalty? No. I don't want to create any laws. I want you to understand the laws that already exist. They exist in creation. If I start imposing laws on other people, I will stifle their... Not only will I be chiseling the stones, <laughs> uh, hewing the stones, I, I will be restricting the power of God to enlighten you. And this is what was happening amongst the Israelites. Is they were discovering all kinds of things through revelation, through the tree of life. Everybody that was going with them was not doing that. But many of them that were going through all this were beginning to understand stuff. I mean, there's knowledge in metallurgy and there's knowledge in the sciences. There's knowledge in breeding and all these things that was coming down through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses they were having a lot of knowledge and information that would give them an edge. But the greatest knowledge they had was the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And that is the knowledge that everybody really needs. So if we, uh, we won't go into 25, I think I'm going to be needed elsewhere. Uh, I will open it up to questions and answers. Uh, if anybody has any questions. Uh, so we got through 24, and uh, we need to understand that the 70 elders that they're talking about was the beginning of the Sanhedrin. Yes, those elders were not judges. They weren't a part of that system of judges. The judges of Israel were in the micro, not in the macro. There was no Supreme Court in Israel as, or at least no Superior Court in Israel. The Sanhedrin could sit in a position almost of being a Supreme Court, but not like we think of it today. They didn't make law. They didn't legislate. But if they saw an injustice, if they saw people going the wrong way, they, they, it was a bully pulpit is what the Sanhedrin was. Now, later on, if you read our article on Sanhedrin, which we link to on the page, you'll see that there were people that came along and gave the Sanhedrin legislative power. And that is simply not what Moses was doing. The laws, there's nobody legislating laws in the kingdom of God. The laws already pre-exist. There are people in the micro who can determine fact and law in the micro, in the individual events at your home level. And there is a system of refuge 
where if you get into trouble, and they mentioned that in episode 11, although they didn't get it right, they, they, they did have some of the elements of it. They don't have the peace quite put into its place. That you could escape, in a manner of speaking, to the cities of refuge. And the cities of refuge could literally acquit you of unjust convictions by local courts. Now, you could stay in the city of refuge, or you could go somewhere else, or you could even go back home. Uh, but in some cases, you might not want to do that. That's an individual judgment call. But if you were acquitted by the cities of refuge, nobody could lay hands on you, no matter where you were geographically located, despite the interpretation of some Jews. Because it was an appeals court to prevent local injustices. The same as that quote I gave you about being careful not to convict the innocent. What was that in? Then I also talk about these tables of stone, the law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Statements. Knowing that those Ten Statements were an expression explaining how the law already created by God exists in the universe. And we need to conform to it or suffer the consequences of not conforming to it. And those consequences will later on in the biblical text be referred to as the wrath of God. Now, if you have, if you're a respecter of God, if you're following the spirit of his, of his judgments, of his statements, then God will fight your battles for you. He will defeat the enemy. He, he, he will send his fear out ahead of you and they will bow down to it. They will not be able to fight against it. Now, he may not always seemingly protect you because he, you have your own personal tests to pass. But the reality is that you're not God. There is a God. That God's influence and power can overcome the wicked. There was a story they did in episode 11 about a woman who uh, was uh, captured by somebody, taken out to the desert. Uh, clearly, he was going to brutalize them and rape them. And take it total advantage of the woman. And uh, when he was about to do it, she actually put her arms around him and said that she loved him. That she didn't hate him. She didn't know him from the man on the moon. But she was basically saying that she forgives him before he even did it. And he couldn't do it. He was unable to do it. He began to break down in tears. Because she touched something in him. But it was something probably in her that touched something in him. I know personally somebody who was kidnapped by somebody who intended to rape her. And she did something similar. She didn't quite get as close to that rape. I mean, she was taken across state lines at gunpoint and all that stuff. But she did something 
that actually showed that she cared about him. And that's what he needed. He had never had anybody care about him. Now, a lot of people could try to emulate that. And it won't work for them. Because it's a spiritual thing. You have to actually care about other people. I can tell you now, I don't care how sweet you think you are. You don't care about people as much as you need to care about people. Which is why Jesus is setting up a system, why Moses was setting up a system where the people had to actively work at caring about one another on a daily basis. That not dot all their I's and cross all their T's and jump through all these pharisaical hoops and get all the yeast out of their house, but get all the cruelty out of their heart. And you can only do that if you come face to face with that cruelty. And you come face to face with that cruelty when you come face to face with that cruelty in other people, maybe towards you or even towards your family, which is harder to deal with, and forgive them. The people who cannot sit down in congregations of ten can always find something wrong with everybody else. They're not going to clean out their temple. They're not going to have room for the Holy Spirit in their temple. You have to forgive so that you can be forgiven. And when you're forgiven by God, the Holy Spirit can enter into you. And then the fear of the Lord will go out before you. And you will be protected by the power of God. You cannot do it to get his protection. You have to do it out of love. But the protection will come when you submit to the will of the Father. So anyway, that that was probably the important message of the whole whole show. <laughs> so, okay, so we're going to take, uh, hello, can you hear me? Hi, Brother Gregory, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, great. This is Isabel, and um, um, since I got through, I just thought I'd ask a quick question because I have been so affected by your interpretation of the milk and the meat, as we spoke <laughs> before. And what you said today, the milk of human kindness and the meat of righteousness, I, I'm just wondering, like, could the misinterpretation by the Pharisees have been intentional and for what purpose to separate the milk and the meat? That being so important, such an important aspect of um, certain dudes. Right. Uh, I'm sure that some of the misinterpretation is intentional, but you can't speak for all of the Pharisees. Many people are taught things and they accept it. That's what they were taught since they were kids. Uh, there, uh, someone, somewhere along the line, had to turn a blind eye to the obvious truth of what they're talking about. And those that have gone and looked at, you know, the milk and meat page, I've added a little bit more to that. The fact is this milk of human kindness or this milk love, this generous love, it it can be given at the same time as the meat love, you know, the righteousness love, the, the, the hard fact of what is right and wrong. But you do not want to boil the meat in the milk. 
So that's that's the whole of the metaphor. You don't want to boil the meat. And many times I see, you know, where, you know, the milk love comes natural to a woman. Not that a man can't have the same love. And uh, sometimes the mother has to fill in with the meat love. And she just has to say, you're not getting away with this. <laughs> That's not right. You shouldn't be doing that. And I'm not giving in. And so they can both do it. But what they're talking about in mixing them is that you somebody comes along and is trying to lay down the law so that the child learns responsibility. We're dealing with children here in this explanation, but it can be with adults as well. And somebody else comes along and dilutes the the limits that are put on it. you got to do this. You didn't do this. Now you're going to be responsible. You have to go do these chores. And the mother comes along and does them for him or something because she thinks, oh, it's just too hard for him. He's... No, and, you know, I could give you all kinds of stories of the guy whose son was moving cement bags to the back of the pickup truck. And they were heavy for this boy. I don't know how old he was, 10, 12 years old. But he was moving the cement bags. And the father, when they got to the back of the truck, the father would pick them up and stack them down. They were returning them to Home Depot. And the a guy who was standing there talking to him felt real bad for the boy because the boy was struggling to move those bags. And he was going to reach over and help him. And the father says, no, let him do it. And and the guy thought, well, geez, the dad's being so strict on him and everything. Well, eventually the boy, there was only a few bags, and eventually the boy got the bags all the way to the back of the truck, and the father took them off and set them down. The guy noticed that the boy, when he got that last bag to the back of that tailgate, his he, he was grinning from ear to ear. He was struggling to do it, but once it was done, he was in seventh heaven. Had somebody come along and felt sorry for the boy, he would have robbed him of the experience of getting that job done. That would have been, in you know, it's a simple thing, but boiling the meat in the milk. They'd be literally ruining the meat in the milk by the metaphor that is slipped in there. But those who go to that page will see that there's three places this shows up in the Bible. Two of them are clearly not food laws. And the third one that seems to show up in the food laws actually shows up at the end of these food laws. I shouldn't even call them food laws. These food statements. It shows up at the end and actually is better connected to what they start talking about immediately thereafter, which is not food laws. So I don't think it ever was a part of the food laws, but somehow, somewhere around 100 B.C. or so, probably more like 150 B.C., somebody started coming in with this teaching. And then, of course, I know you personally have had experience with this where they've turned it into an absolute total mindless ritual and they miss the whole point but of course they've done that with the altars they've done that with you know the red heifer we have an article on that they've done that with leaven they so eventually when we if we start getting this information out to other people they're going to see a pattern developing where you know if we hadn't believed these guys we might still be free people today (laughs) We we not we might not be such weak people today, so yeah, some of it was probably intentional, but it doesn't really matter. 
What's important is our intent to get it right and to do it right. And that's a struggle on the micro, on the individual basis. Because there isn't a mother out there that sees her son or daughter struggling and wants to help them out. And so on an individual basis, you just sometimes have to say they've got to do this on their own. I, I If I interfere with the milk of human kindness, I'm going to weaken my son. And of course, that's what you see. Now, put it on the macro. In the liberal welfare state, they just keep upping the benefits. Oh, you need more of this. You need more food stamps. You need more Medicare, Medicaid. You need all these benefits. And they've destroyed the family and the black community and, and many of the other communities. We see it very The black community was the canary in the coal mine. They destroyed what used to be one of the strongest, healthiest communities in America. Sometimes oppressed in certain parts of the country, certainly. But like the Israelites, when they were oppressed in Egypt, they grew stronger. And if and eventually the, the oppression began to go away, and now blacks have almost as many opportunities as anybody else. The Chinese were also oppressed. They got stronger. They learned workarounds. They became wealthier. Ethiopians are black, and they're doing better than almost anybody because they worked around the barriers of language and culture that were thrown in front of them. And they got stronger. What weakened the black community is legal charity administered like it's all milk. Uh, you know, they just give it away. You don't, you don't have to do anything yourself. You just have to show up poor and they will give you stuff. And they've weakened the, the black community, destroyed the black family that used to be the strongest, some of the strongest families in America. There were a lot of Oriental Chinese families that were very strong, but a lot of Chinese came over here without their family. And so, you didn't see it amongst all the Oriental community, the Chinese community, the Asian community that came over. But those who came over, like the boat people, they're, you know, in in one generation, they're wealthy. And they came over with nothing. It isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with race. It has to do with family. It has to do with love and caring for one another. And a lot of Mexican families are really strong that way. But... It also has to do with community. And that's what we see in what Moses is setting up. Because, but the the family is the micro. The individual within the family, that's the micro. So you have to apply that love and meat on the micro with the boy in the back of the pickup, etc., etc., with the girl that has to be responsible for whatever her jobs are with my grandkids, whatever their jobs are, that's in the micro. But in the macro, it has to come from the micro. It doesn't come from the top. It comes from God through the heart of the individual. So it starts in the family, and then it has to go out to community. A lot of the Hispanic communities in South America, in Mexico, they're very strong families, there are sometimes even very strong villages, but they could care less about the next village. As a matter of fact, they're actually competitive with the next village. And it's why they're still in poverty. And uh, for 
because of the fact that then you end up with cartels or some strong ruler coming in and nobody nobody can get their head over a certain level because they don't come together. Coming together is absolutely essential. But what binds you? Are you bound with love? That love has to be sometimes milk, but it's going to have to be meat. And that's why I quoted Colossians this morning and and some of these other places where they talk about, you know, I fed you with milk, but now we need the meat. And we get a lot of meat on this show. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, yeah, you're still there. Uh, did Is that a sufficient answer? Do we need to talk about it more? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Thank you so much. But uh, anyway, thanks for the call, Isabel. And uh, we'll see you on the network. Wait a minute. Oh, I see another hand come up. I'm going to have to do the other hand. <laughs> Unless they accidentally push a button. So I'm going to take uh, 9-0 uh, and see what they have to say. Hello. Hi, Brother Gregory. This is Pam from Maine. Okay. Pam from Maine. Do you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, I was just hoping that you might clarify something for me. I seem to be hung up in Genesis one 27, where God created man in his own image. God blessed them and goes down and down, and, and then God finished his work on the seventh day in, in Genesis 2, 2. And then we skipped to Genesis 2, 7. Now here's the Lord God, and in Genesis 1, 27, it was God, but now we have the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils. So do we have, can you clarify, are there two creations going on? Or we, we have the original creation in 127, and then what is this forming? Yeah, this is, this is, we actually saw this in a lot of Exodus as well. Moses, of course, Moses is the guy writing Genesis and Exodus and everything. And it has something to do with the writing style. I don't know where he picked it up. I have found it in other manuscripts of ancient text where they repeat things. They repeat stories. And actually there's a, there's a formula where they talk about in prophecies where there will be something that is talked about that's supposedly a prophecy for a particular people. We'll see it in some of the minor prophets. And they will give this prophecy for the local people that he's actually dealing with at that time. And then he will repeat the pro- prophecy again. And you think, well, you just said that, you know, a chapter earlier or several verses earlier, and now you're saying it again. And that is supposedly, this is the interpretation a lot of people say, and I can't say that it's wrong. It's because this prophecy is like, you know, you learn from history because history repeats itself. This prophecy will repeat itself. If you see it three times, it will repeat itself over and over again. And But then you have to understand the principle of what they're telling when he's saying here in verse 7, the Lord, of course that's Yahweh, God, formed man of the dust of the ground. That's of the red clay. Now, that's our translation, dust of the ground. And we've looked at some of these words. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of a life. And then, of course, we should look at what word does he have there for life? 
because there are specific words for life because there's there's uh uh several words nefesh is translated life 117 times uh and che which is the word we see here which is just chet yad is is translated life 144 times uh, they both appear you know i don't remember what uh, nefesh is but uh it probably is more than che but they're actually different completely different words in the Hebrew. But yeah. we're translating them into a single word, life. What are they actually trying to tell us? Well, with the Holy Spirit, we can figure this out. But but it talks about man became a living soul. When Jesus came out of the tomb... Yeah, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Go ahead. Wait a minute, please, just a moment. Because if... Uh, back to uh, Genesis one twenty nine, God said to uh, man that he created. He spoke to them. So doesn't that mean they were alive and they were receptive? Well, there's a lot. You know, I can so speak. I can, I can speak to my horse. <laughs> and he may be alive and receptive, but he may not understand everything I say. <laughs> so... I know, but in, in, in 2.7, it implies that at this moment, when the, the, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, indicating or suggesting that this is when life started, but I, I think that the previous verses contradict that. Well, it's, it's, it's not necessarily when life started. I just explained to you that there are different words for life in the Hebrew language that are translated into the same English word, life. Uh, I'd have to go back to Genesis, what did you say? It was in 120, which one are you reading? Seven. Uh, reading 127? 127. Chapter 127, verse 27, is that what you're saying? Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, we don't have to finish the, the discussion tonight, but I just... I, I, this is really, I'm, I'm having a really big problem with this because, uh, I mean, if you really go into it, and I've learned so much from what you've taught, I think that's pr- part of the reason that I'm, I'm so aware of words now and the different meanings. I never, I never saw that before. But anyway, if you, uh, you know, think about, it, maybe you could do a study on, on these two verses. Well, uh, I probably will. But now, uh, you're, you, when you say in. Genesis 1, verse 27. Yes. Where does it, it doesn't have the word life in that text. It says it makes him in his own image. It says he created them, so. Created man. I I guess. Yeah, but it doesn't say he breathed life into him. It said he created man. Yes. And that is. And then down in and again, in, in twenty nine, go ahead. He speaks to them. He speaks to them in twenty nine, saying, "Behold, I have given you every plant, blah blah blah," and and it was so. Right. And then and then not only that, but once he did that, it says the, his work was finished. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So he was done. So well, he was done with what he had done then. 
that was the end of his work period, whether it was six days or whatever, if you want to start turning all this into literal. But the reality is, is it doesn't say anything about him breathing life into him, as far as I can see, going down all these verses. But it does say that he created man. But Adam, he breathed life into it. Now, let me, let me jump forward. Uh, let me jump forward to Jesus Christ. Yeah, there, there's a lot of people that are alive that I can talk to, and they're not going to hear what I have to say. They're going to think they hear, but they're not. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he walked into his apostles, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. They now will end up knowing things that he says and understand the deeper meaning of them. And we actually see that in numerous verses that... He had told them many things before his death. They didn't understand it. When he sees them along the beach later on after the resurrection, he has to explain many of the things that they had heard before but did not understand completely. They might have thought they had an understanding, but now they had a deeper understanding. And what we're seeing here is an explanation that God created mankind back there, doesn't say breathe this spirit into them, they were alive, but, you know, if you go back into the the Hebrew, when Noah's loading the ark, now this will fly in the face of a lot of heresies, I'm not trying to create heresies, we got enough heresies around, (laughs) but but he's loaded the animals that breed one-on-one, and he's loaded the animals that breed one-to-seven, you know, herd animals, where you have, uh, you know, like a buck, and it has seven does. He's loaded them. And now he's loading the beasts of the field. Well, who are the beasts of the field? Because if you look at the Hebrew there, the actual words, beasts of the field, would normally be translated living souls. Who are those that he's loading on the ark? They're not herd animals. They're not the other animals that breed one-on-one. They're the living souls of the field. Now, I know they say that only eight people were on the ark, Noah and his family. But those were eight people that were inheriting what most, what God had given Abraham. I mean, excuse me. What? Well, actually, it was what God would eventually give to Abraham. But it was what God gave to Adam. Adam was given dominion. The beasts of the fields were not given dominion. But when we say dominion, if I say that today, under the modern thinking, we think that dominion is the right to rule over other people. But that's not what God was giving Adam. That was not what God was giving Abraham. It's not what God gave the real Israelites. We have to remember all those people following Moses were not really all Israelites. Israelites were those who were actually continuing with God in their heart and their mind. There were a lot of people coming along because they didn't have any place else to go. And they, Moses was a very charismatic figure. But even Dennis Prager says, it's only those people who do the will of the Father are Israel. Those people who contend with listening to God and attempt to follow the will of God, that's Israel. Although we have an Israel today over there in the Middle East, it, 
They may not be doing what God wants. They may just be calling themselves Israel. But I always deal with people on the micro, the individual. And I'm sure there's individuals over there that are very close to God. And there's individuals over here. There's probably individuals up in Maine. <laughs> I don't know. That's not oh, my job. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I actually know people in Maine. Can you tell me what part of Maine that you're in? Yes, I'm in southern Maine. And I have a study buddy about... Uh, an hour and 15 minutes from me, we both discovered you. We've been on a three-year journey of studying linguistics and world history and the legal system and and uh, the Bible, which we've both come through a lot of, lot of, of Bible years. But um, we both listen here in Maine, and we've actually been on the women's talks. Okay, that's good. Yeah, the, the people I know there, I'll only give, uh, I'll just give their first name. I won't give their last name. Uh, George and Rita, and they're up in age. They have a son and a daughter, I know, but I know them from, trying to think of when I first met them. It was 50 years ago almost, probably 49 years ago I first met them. But their name is George and Rita, but they live a little bit north of you probably. Uh, yeah, probably. I'm, uh, I escaped from Massachusetts 35 years ago, so I'm in southern Maine. Okay. Well, I, I was in Massachusetts 55 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> I lived in Dorchester, Massachusetts. So, uh, in summation, I think you've helped me because I, I now understand that this uh, 127 could be that the vessel of mankind, the, the physical anatomy and physiology, the, the, the physical stuff was created, but not until the breath of life or the soul the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was infused in in two seven. I can see that, and um, I think that's very credible. Yeah. They, well, again, you know, the even when you look at the words in the Hebrew, and and look for the actual, you know, what they're saying, they they add extra letters, and you can't tell that just by looking at a concordance. You have to actually look at the original text. But ultimately, what I would like to impart is that. You cannot really understand all the scriptures in the biblical text unless it is revealed to you because you're reading a text, a human text, that is the product of revelation. To understand it can only be the product of revelation because words are finite and revelation is is not finite. It's infinite. And, of course, it's an infinite journey that we're all on. And uh, so you just got to take it one step at a time. But the the idea that they explain creation at one level, and then they explain it in a deeper level in another place, very common throughout the prophets in the Bible. And that's what you'll see. They'll repeat the same prophecy over in the same, you know, minor prophet. But the second time they repeat it, they'll add something in, or they'll they'll rearrange something. And those people that are reading it with the Holy Spirit, they will often see that extra meaning. Uh, if you tr- just try to do it with the tree of knowledge, our own intellect, it won't be enough. Nothing wrong with the intellect, but you can't you can't see the infinite with the the finite intellect. But anyway, I appreciate your call. And your name was Pam? Yes, I'm Pam. Okay, I'll try to remember that. I'm not very good at names, but I may remember you now. (laughs) 
All right. Well, thank you so much for, for your time and explanation. Yeah, thank you for your call. And thank you, Isabella. I see you're still okay. there. But now uh, we'll sign off because I know there are people waiting for me in other locations. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thank you, everybody, for coming. Peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.